Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, March the 20th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Later on in today's podcast, I'll be joined by Jennifer Bray to discuss how the political system at local and national level is dealing or not dealing with the regulation of gambling machines. But first, as ever these days... Brexit. At the time of recording, it appears British Prime Minister Theresa May will be requesting a short three-month extension to the Article 50 process in advance of tomorrow's EU summit in Brussels. I'm joined in studio by our political editor, Pat Leahy, and on the line from Brussels, our Europe editor, Patrick Smith. Paddy Smith, I suppose we should really know by now not to listen to Received Wisdom, but Received Wisdom yesterday was that Theresa May was going to go to Brussels and request a sort of a double-barrelled extension, um, a sort of a three-month and a nine-month one, depending on how events turned out over the next over the next uh, week or two. But uh, that has proved not to be the case. Uh, we understand now that she is going to request a short extension of three months or thereabouts to Article 50. Well, we don't really know. We haven't seen the letter that she's supposed to be sending to uh, the uh, council and its president, Donald Tusk. Uh, We've just come out of a briefing uh, with the the council um, and they're saying they haven't received a letter and they're waiting on on clarification from London as to what she wants. Uh, The other thing uh, which happened this morning was that that at at another briefing by one of the member states, it was suggested to me that uh, even if she does make a request for a short extension, which is more likely, certainly, uh, that the council tomorrow, the summit tomorrow, might decide not to make any decision until after the convening of her MV3, her meaningful vote three, which is supposed to happen uh, next week. So the possibility is that there would be another summit convened If she gets her support on MV3, that is to say, she gets her withdrawal agreements support through, um, there's a strong feeling here that a short transition, uh, what they call a technical transition to implement the legislation, will go through without any great problem. If, however, she doesn't get her support on on MV3, uh, it's an altogether different ballgame, and uh, she would need... Uh, if she was serious about pursuing things, a, a longer extension uh, at, at that stage. Uh, conditions are likely to be quite strict in relation to that. So th- the mood here is probably that we're we're not going to face any decision tomorrow. Uh, well, just ask, let me ask you a couple of follow-ups on that. One is, um, that's a very, very tight timeline. If, say, for example, as some have suggested, the third meaningful vote, um, you know, John Burka was bypassed in some fashion, and there are a couple of mechanisms available to do that. Third meaningful vote happens Wednesday or maybe Thursday of next week. You're down, the clock is ticking to 24, 36 hours. If that vote doesn't succeed, to come up with a plan B? Yeah, it's a very, very tight uh, and uh, but everybody says it is possible simply to extend Article 50 relatively simply, and that could be done on 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 Thursday until the 
May the 22nd or, or indeed July the 1st, uh, when the parliament will, the new parliament will sit. Uh, the uh, the reality is that uh, that extension is relatively simple process. Uh, it's what happens during that time, which is quite complicated. There's huge amounts of legislation uh, still to be passed uh, to to prepare for either a no deal or uh, um, a withdrawal agreement uh, implementation. And then when you talk about the more stringent conditions, what, what might they be? Well, the Commission has been saying quietly for some time uh, that uh, Britain has to d- demonstrate a persuasive uh, plan uh, on what it, ha- what it is going to do with the time that it's given. Uh, the European Union is fed up with uh, prevarication in London and says that it's not going to give them an extension to go on doing the same thing, faffing around in the same old way, more of the same. That's simply not on. We're not, as uh, Coveney said last night, uh, we're not kicking the can down the road uh, uh, again. So she will have to come here and persuade uh, leaders that she is going to change her approach in a significant way. Now, that could mean an election. That could mean a second vote. It could mean a willingness to embrace some of the ideas that Corbyn and, and his, his lot are supporting. But she's shown no inclination to do any of that. And even admitting that she wants to do something radical uh, is uh, is going to be very difficult for her. And she's certainly not going to want to do that before she has uh, continued to chase down a majority for her meaning, uh, for her uh, withdrawal agreement uh, motion. But Pat, you wanted Paddy, to come in here. Yeah, I just wanted to ask Paddy, what does he think the EU's stick is? In that regard. So if the EU says, no, we're not going to give you this short extension, if that's what they say, we're insufficiently impressed with the with the plans that you have presented for uh, to us as to what the extension is for. Is that I'm just wondering, you know, how does what's the EU holding out for there? It's it's threat is that they will let the UK crash out next Friday, which seems to me. The EU doesn't want that, least of all, Ireland doesn't want that. I think the, the reality is that the, there are two two bars being set by the EU. One is in relation to a short-term extension, and there's a general acceptance that uh, that will probably go through. Um, and, then, and then there's the argument for a long extension. Uh, that's more difficult, and the EU is going to set uh, tougher requirements on her uh, to uh, grant a, a long extension. And there, there's more voices here saying... No question of a long extension. We we just don't believe she has uh, the will or the capability of changing things around, and we're not going to give her uh, months more to prevaricate and and faff around. But isn't the reality, or one of the political realities of a long extension, is that it probably won't be her. I mean, as it stands, she's widely described as a leader in name only. The events at her cabinet over the last 24 hours, you know, do do illustrate that. Hasn't there always been a, a, a bit of a view in some parts of the EU? I think it was reported it was held by Macron for quite a long time that a long extension would allow for a better outcome from the point of view of the EU. I think... Uh, there is some sense that 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 might be the case. But they're not convinced uh, that a a different leader is necessarily going to produce a different result. The the, the issue is the red lines that the British have have, uh, uh, set out and and an unwillingness to change and to move on on those red lines. Uh, Removing uh, Mrs May isn't going to change that reality. Um, 
particularly as as you see uh, a very un- unhelpful uh, Labour Party, uh, unwilling to, if you like, support the, the, the withdrawal agreement. But I'm sorry to come back to this, though, but what's the EU's threat to Mrs May? It seems to me it, it doesn't have one except we will let you crash out, which isn't really a threat at all if we accept that the EU, particularly Ireland, won't stand for that. Uh, So in other words, Mrs May, if the EU doesn't have, you know, a a stick in this argument, then Mrs May would get whatever she wants. No, I don't don't think that's right. I think there is a general conviction here that she is incapable of getting a solution and that uncertainty will simply continue for the next nine months or or two years, some people have suggested, if uh, they they give her this long extension without the copper fastened guarantees that she's going to change her, her approach. So it doesn't make any difference to them. Uh, in fact, it improves things for, from some point of view in, in, in providing certainty if, if uh, she's forced to make the decision now about what she's going to do. What would the read in, in Brussels be of the analysis of, of a short extension, which says that a short extension could play into the hands of the hard Brexiteers or even the no-deal Brexiteers because we would run up against this buffer at the end of June, essentially, and that really would be, uh, I know we've heard this phrase has been overused, but that would be the cliff edge. Um, and that would be the point where, uh, where where the UK really could crash out. And that, that that's a lot more likely then than it is in the next week, in the next week and a half. I come back to this issue of, of, of red lines. If Britain is not willing and has shown no inclination whatsoever to re- rethink its, its red line, it's going to crash out. Um, and, and so the, the extension of, of three months is is postponing the evil day for for three months. But that's all. Pat, what do you make of this? I'm 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 not for the first time confused. Well, I suppose. Look, the big problem in the process is Mrs. May's inability to get to impose her will on the House of Commons, on her own party, on her own, on even her own cabinet as we saw yesterday. And I'm not sure there's a great deal the EU can do about it at this stage. It's not going to open the withdrawal agreement. Uh, There may be some scope for rewriting the political declaration over the coming months. But there's no guarantee whatsoever that even if those steps are taken, and this is the great reluctance, I think. Paddy could speak to this with more authority than I could, but it seems to me from speaking to people in Brussels. This is the great reluctance and always has been uh, in recent months on the part of the EU to give her these concessions on the part of Dublin to give her these concessions because there's no guarantee that if they uh, if the concessions are made that they will be enough and lo and behold, that is exactly uh, what, has, uh, what has happened. So really, it's hard to see how the EU can unlock the bind in uh, in Parliament. It, I think it's probably only Mrs May that can do that. And I would imagine that, or something like it, is what leaders will be saying uh, to Mrs May tomorrow. The consequence of that for Ireland is that, as Paddy says, if there is a three-month extension, which seems the most likely outcome of uh, of, of this week and, and next week, that it may really be a countdown to 
uh, to a crash out Brexit or to to a hard Brexit. And this is something that I was hearing around government circles um, in recent times here about an extension that it serves two purposes. It gives her more time, but it also allows everybody to prepare for uh, for a hard Brexit. And that obviously would be uh, uh, something of immense consequence uh, for the country and for the government here. Paddy, what's the perspective from Brussels on that, that the three months is as much about preparing for a for a no-deal Brexit or a crash-out Brexit? I think that's probably the case. I mean, it, uh, I do, I, there is a slightly plaintive quality to the refrain that you hear from here uh, when people, journalists on the BBC particularly, ask European figures, uh, what are you going to do to help Mrs May out? They say, we've done everything we possibly can, and it's now a matter of sorting the problem out in London. It's The mess is in London. The uh, dysfunctionality is 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 in London, and, and we can't do anymore. There isn't anything else that we can do, and so we just have to let the thing play out. I mean, the, this big summit is tomorrow, and Pat, I know you're going to be there, and Paddy's going to be there, and Dennis Staunton, our London editor, is going to be there. It's going to be the Holy Trinity all together <laughs> there in, 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 in We're Brussels. We're sending our top guys. <laughs> um, the, uh, it's clear, that, and it's not remotely surprising, that the, the, the 27 governments are reluctant to propose... You know, you know, significant political moves in a member state, that's an inappropriate thing for them to do, be that an election or a referendum or whatever it might be. I mean, Michel Barnier was a little bit more outspoken um, about this. And really, is the the way out of the conundrum, the British conundrum, which you and Pat have described there, does that not have to be either an election or a referendum? I, I, I was amused this morning because I wrote up that Barnier uh, story and I, I said that he was implying that what what the British needed to do was to talk about either an election or, or, a, or a second vote. Uh, and at the briefing this morning uh, in the Irish Embassy, I was told very firmly that uh, uh, the EU was not making any specific demands of, of the British. Uh, nevertheless, nobody was denying that the implication was there in, in the Barnier comments. So yes is the answer to that? Yes. Pat, what do you think about that? I mean, as well, an objective. I, I mean, if you're, you're, I mean, you're, you're kind of questioning what you know, what stick the EU has, but there's also a question of what strategy the EU has, rather than throwing up its hands in the air and saying sort yourselves out, which clearly isn't working. Well, I think the strategy has been to give Mrs May everything that they felt they could reasonably give her, uh, consistent with their own red lines and with the with the Irish requirements on the border. And also to take Mrs May's word at face value when she said, I can get this through the House of Commons. Lo and behold, she can't get it through the House of Commons. So, I mean, to the extent that we're seeing, you know, this sort of aimlessness in London, increasingly panicky aimlessness in London. I'm not sure, and, you know, again, be interested to see what Paddy has to say about this, but I'm not sure that there is a plan B, as it were, in Brussels as to how to uh, as to how to help the British get this over the line. Now, you might very well say, of course, well, it's not Brussels' job to get it over the line in, uh, in, in London, but it may be the case that without further help from Brussels, she cannot get it over the line in London. And that presents problems not just for the EU as a whole, but for Ireland specifically. Paddy? Yes, I think... Um uh, it's true. People are, are scratching their heads and thinking, is there anything else that we can do? Uh, the answer is is no. Uh, people are sort of looking to perhaps the word, the form of words that the DUP might 
persuade the, the government to come up with, uh, specifically on some kind of involvement in, of the Northern Executive in um, m management of any backstop. Uh, those sort of issues are viewed here as internal British matters, and nobody's talking about them. Nobody's saying we, we think that would be good or bad. But it certainly seems to be the only way in which you can help the British out, or the, the British can be helped out getting the thing across the line. Uh, it, it, there are things that, like the assurances that were given last week, don't involve touching the withdrawal agreement uh, and, and its contents or touching the, the backstop. Paddy, we let you go there. I know you've got um, a busy day in Brussels ahead of the summit. So thanks for joining us today. So, Pat, there is no plan B. Great. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I, I think one thing to be said and uh, uh, about it at this stage is that actually, you know, obviously we are playing, we are, the, the, the clock is ticking down, it's nearly five to midnight and et cetera, et cetera. And there's all, a bit all, of just the drama all because of these things. Yes, yeah. and, you know, everybody's been saying for months now that, oh, this is going to come down to the last minute and lo and behold, it's coming down to the last minute. Mm -hmm. um, I, th two things to say about that, I think. One is that, put, put yourself into Jacob Rees-Mogg's handmade church's shoes and, uh, and imagine yourself a couple of weeks back and, you know, what would you have wanted? I think something like this, something like the situation that now obtains is exactly what you would have wanted. You would have wanted the clock to be still ticking down. No uh, summit coming up, exasperation with the UK in Brussels, no, uh, uh, no certainty that an extension is going to be granted at tomorrow's summit. So therefore, if not, then, then perhaps... Next week, maybe another summit required. Everything funneling through to this point of crisis at the last minute. And then were you Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, in, 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 his, in his huntsman suit and his, and his church's shoes, he would want something to go wrong then at the last minute to mean that legally the UK crashes out. Now that's a week off, but we are on that trajectory now. Now, it doesn't mean that the trajectory will follow to a crash out. We continue towards a crash out Brexit, but it is on that. A crash out Brexit is still on the cards. No resolute, no immediate resolution is in sight. So, uh, you know, to that extent, we are still at a point of very significant danger. The other thing I would say about it, though, is that I think it is possible for Mrs. May to pass this deal. I thought that last week, going through the numbers, I think it is possible. I think if she was allowed hold, uh, if she had been allowed by the Speaker to hold a meaningful vote, third meaningful vote yesterday, I think the margin would have tightened very significantly. And I think it would be, uh, it would be clear that a fourth go at it next week, perhaps on the Thursday, the eve of Brexit, that it could, uh, it could and get it through. And the third might have needed the fourth in order to unlock some of those vote votes who weren't going to jump unless they were sure they were going to be on the side of history and Precisely. on the side of the winning yes. side. Precisely, yes. Yeah, yeah. These, this is the idea and it's not a new one in, in parliamentary terms, uh, you know, is that, you know, the votes will be there when you need them. They won't be there until you need them, but they will be there when you need them. And I think that was Mrs May's calculation. I think that was thrown 
somewhat off course by the Speaker's unexpected intervention yesterday. Again, a bit like the Attorney General's advice a week ago, something foreseeable that Mrs May catastrophically failed to plan for. But it doesn't necessarily mean that her hope of passing the deal through the House is, uh, is, is dead. I think that is still a possibility but it's become more difficult. So let me sure. ask you then, if Paddy says there is no plan B um, and he also says the EU is sick of king, kicking the can down the road, although it strikes me the EU is an institution, institution which invented and finessed and brought to a higher point than it had ever been before the sport of kicking cans down roads. Oh, it's, it's, uh, truly, it's an art. <laughs> that, um, that nobody in the EU, particularly Ireland, as you say, wants to fall into this trap, if it is such a trap, which has been set by um, Mr. Rees-Mogg. That's the worst of all possible worlds, isn't it? So why not have yes, it a is. bit of a safety net? Why not do your analysis, same as, as as you have done there, of how close Theresa May is, and do all you can to facilitate uh, yeah, be, that, be, that, be, that achievement? Because, you know, in 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 the real world of statecraft and the taking of serious long-term decisions which have profound effects on people's lives, it's not really tenable for the EU to throw its hands in the air and say, oh, feck it, we've done everything we can. It's up to, uh, it's, it's up to London now. You do need to whatever extent to place yourselves in the shoes of your opponents and are, are your interlocutors uh, they're not supposed to be opponents and see uh, and, and and see what they need and if that is deliverable uh, by you and so i think that there's i i you know i think there is a logic to that safety net idea um it would be interesting i think particularly to see what the irish approach what leo varadkar is saying in the discussion tomorrow night over dinner or after dinner that follows when the EU Council goes into Article 50 formation, as they say. She makes her presentation, then she leaves, then the leaders have a discussion. I think it would be really interesting to see what Leo Varadkar is saying at, at that stage because, of course, he has Irish as well as EU interests to think about. Um number of people within government that I sought to speak to about this yesterday were uh, were, were were very tight-lipped. Seems to me there is a, 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 there is a sort of a, a vow of silence has been taken by uh, by Irish officials and politicians on this uh, at the moment because um, because I don't think that they see that any speculation appearing in the media would be helpful to their cause. But there is a very serious issue clearly facing Ireland more so than any other EU country sure. if the uh, if the, the 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 trap as you put it by Jacob Rees-Mogg and the hard Brexiteers is in danger of uh, of being sprung that's not to say that there's a button that Leo Varadkar can push to get everybody out of this but I, I, I'd be interested to see is- what what is being briefed tomorrow in Brussels uh, by the Irish side. Okay. And, and, and is there, sticking with the Irish perspective, obviously a, a kind of key subplot, if not the key subplot in this process by which Theresa May achieves a majority in the House of Commons in the end, is the DUP and these negotiations have been going on for several days now and we all know that the DUP, you know, play hardball. I think 
Paddy says correctly that the EU really doesn't have much of a role to play in that because it's correct when it says that these are internal matters, whether uh, a Stormont executive, should such a thing exist again at some point in the future, would have some sort of veto power on legislation, internal UK legislation pertaining to how the backstop is implemented across the entire entirety of the United Kingdom of Great Britain yeah, and North my, Ireland. My understanding is that it's all it's 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 already a matter of British uh, policy that Stormont is consulted, and Cons- that consulted that that couldn't, but that 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 couldn't be a matter for the EU. No, absolutely, yeah, and that, that, that's, and that's therefore it's difficult to see. And while I know there were uh, very significant concerns in Dublin about the prospect of a Stormont veto on uh, on anything. Uh, it's difficult to see how that could become an EU matter in in any talks going forward. No, but obviously, from an Irish perspective, we have we have an interest in how that you know our how how our friends across the border or thirty five percent of our friends across the border, um, you know, carry out this and what the implications are of that. You know, if effectively the backstop, for example, remains a UK wide backstop because of a veto which exists at Stormont. That, but that veto would be implementable against British, against yes. a British government uh, decision to uh, diverge from EU regulations. It would prevent a post Theresa May government from deciding to go back to some sort of form of checks and balances. But that's a matter as to whether London wishes to bind itself to Stormont, not whether... Uh, Stormont wishes to bind itself to to our, our diverge from Brussels. No, no, absolutely. And within that, the, the, just just looking at you know the challenge facing Theresa May, um, is there not a danger in agreeing something of that sort with the DUP that that might lose you some of your hardline Brexiteers in the in the European Research Group? I think there's a certain hardcore of the European Research Group that won't be coming on board anyway, and I think that's pretty well recognised. What the DUP would do, and the DUP certainly according to Dublin, also people in London, the DUP are looking for Ready to a deal. deal. And I think, mm. you know, the the sort of noises that was coming out of the uh, the DUP before the Burqa ruling yesterday were very much uh, emollient in the sense that they were looking for, uh, they're looking for a deal, they're looking for a ladder to climb down in the, uh, 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 in, in the argo of these talks. But... Um, uh, what that would do is not just unlock all but the most hardline ERG votes, or so the theory goes, but also those votes in the Labour Party, the Labour Brexiteers, that would ultimately be necessary to pass the deal if you accept that there will be a, a rump of the ERG that won't move. What's going to happen next week? I think there will be a short extension and... Uh, I think there will not be a crash out Brexit, but but don't quote me on that. Okay, we won't. <laughs> Pat, thanks for joining us, and stick with us for a change of subject when I'm joined by Jennifer Bray from our political staff. You're listening to the Irish Times. Now, our political reporter Jennifer Bray is here. Jennifer, we wanted to talk to you about it's a somewhat different story in some ways from a lot of the stuff that we cover here, but it does pertain to the way our politics work and the effect that has on real people on the ground. You've been looking at the gambling machine industry, if it is an industry, and how it works in Ireland and what's going on. Yeah, and and it's an interesting one. Like once we kind of got stuck into it and, and dug into it, we kind of found that there 
is a strange sort of situation existing now where we have all of these machines proliferating around the country, uh, feeding into people's gambling addictions, and there are commonly known risks associated with them, and that they're, by and large, critics say they're pretty much unregulated. So we had a situation last week in Donegal, in the Inishowen and Letterkenny Municipal Districts, where councillors voted in favour of allowing these gaming machines to exist in those areas. So how they did that was, under the current gambling law, on part three of the gambling law, it basically means that you can a local authority can allow these machines into their areas and the government has no role or responsibility. So even though that's part of our legislation, that uh, authority is devolved out to local authorities. So once a local authority decides, yes, OK, we'll vote in favour of legalising gaming in this area, then all a person has to do is go to their district court, uh, get the uh, order for that and then go to revenue and get their cert and then they can set up one of these gaming machines. So why did councillors in Inishowen and Letterkenny vote in favour of this? So what happened was just before Christmas, a number of business owners who run arcades in the area went before the councillors and made a presentation. And I, I was speaking to someone who was there yesterday and said that it was very convincing presentation where they said that they have, they employ 129 people in these arcades. They pay around €100,000 in rates every year. Basically, they're a, they're a big business in the area. But the problem for them was that revenue were cracking down. There are two kinds of machines. It's amusement machine, which is they're fairly like innocent. It's You can win up to seven euro or a chance to play again. Or there's the second machine, the machines we were writing about, gaming machines. Like, what are we talking about? We're saying gaming machines, slot machines, roulette, any, anything electronic whereby you can win over seven euro on anything beyond. So obviously, you can understand why these machines pose a danger especially to, to gambling addicts. And when you say there was a revenue crackdown, the revenue crackdown was because they weren't licensed to be operating these machines. They were yeah. illegal, basically. Yeah, basically, yeah. And they were only licensed to operate the, the more simpler kind of uh, uh, less threatening machine, the, the amusement machine where you can just play again and again, basically. So once revenue started going around and seeing that these were mainly amusement machines, you, you know, the amusement licenses for these machines, they started cracking down and they did seize them. And I think they've seized nearly 300 machines since they've started their their compliance programme. So these business owners basically came before them and said, we need you to legalise this. We need you to legalise gaming in the area so then we can go and get these licences. And the councillors were faced with a decision, a, a pretty unpalatable decision. Do they want to be blamed for a loss of 129 jobs or do they want to be have the finger pointed at them potentially for normalising gambling, have that allegation put against them? So in Inishowen, they voted five to four to legalise gaming so it was in the a tight area. Vote. It was, yeah, it was a tight vote. So that's the situation there. And I think when we started looking into it, we saw that this was a problem around the country. And I think if you want to get an idea of how outdated the gambling laws are, you just have to look to the title of the laws. For example, uh, they are the Gambling and Lotteries Act 1956 and the Betting Act of 1931. So there have been massive leaps in technology in the last five years, let alone the last 50 years. So it's, it's kind of incredible that we have the situation where we have gambling laws going back to the 30s that are what we're currently operating under. Um, and multiple governments have grappled with this. Uh, the Senator and, and Senior Counsel Michael McDool in the Shannon last month made a really, really interesting speech where he talked about when he was the Minister for Justice, he tried to crack down on the reg- regulation of casinos because they're largely unregulated and how he came up against resistance and that multiple government after multiple government has failed to, and I think the quote he used was, 
grab the issue by the by the scruff of the neck. Including the government of which he was a party. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, but to be fair to him now, they did have a report in 2008, this is 10 years ago, and I picked a quote out from it, which I thought was interesting, where the, this report described the gambling laws as a relic of social history. And there was one really interesting part where they said that the law, when the laws were first enacted, and I quote, foreign travel was rare, the first planning act had yet to be passed, bingo was called pongo, and much of the Oireachtas debates concerned uh, gaming at carnivals. So... That's that's what our laws are essentially regulating. That's the form of gambling. So one of the, one of the things that strikes me about this as being interesting and, and and worrying is this is actually one of the powers. I mean, we hear a lot about the fact that local authorities in Ireland don't have a lot of powers. This is one that they they do actually have, you know, a significant input into. But in the same time, this industry and it is a very lucrative industry and it employs a lot of people in Ireland. It, there is lots of evidence about the negative impact that uh, gambling has on people's lives, and there's strong arguments that could be made in favour of being relatively restrictive in the way uh, in the way people get access to it particularly people who are vulnerable uh, these machines there's no limit on how much money you can bet on them or how much money you can lose on them and am i right in saying that if they are licensed to operate in a particular local area um you could open you could have one anywhere you could have one in a pub could you have one in a chipper could you have one anywhere yeah once you get your license and your premises is licensed you can put the machine in and like the situation is this is an industry that's worth anywhere up to 8 billion annually and there were figures from the HSC released recently which showed that they treated 800 gambling addicts over the last 3 years so you have this aspect of business and then the real social cost of gambling and like that is a, a line that no government has managed to kind of breach. You know, we, we're left in this situation where the our gambling um, technology has become very sophisticated, but our laws are arcane. And the, you're right on the point you make about local authorities. They do have the power to do this. And we've seen a good example of this where they come under pressure saying, we're going to see multiple job losses. And they say, you know, you have to legalise this. And the councillors are left to make that decision. And is this happening all over the country? There is evidence that it is happening. I mean, there is a situation in Cork and Mitchellstown whereby a very well-known arcade uh, amusement operator, Perks, who run an, an arcade in Yall, that they want to expand into Mitchellstown. And this is a years-long running um, argument. Locals in the area say absolutely not. They say if you walk within 150 metres of the main town that you you come across three bookies and that they think that if they have this big ar- arcade in the middle of town, near schools and shops and takeaways and the whole lot that you're normalising gambling. So that is, that's um, a very high profile case that's ongoing at the moment. So we are seeing it kind of around the country and like a lot of it has been spurred on by this revenue crackdown where they're saying, if you don't have a licence for a gaming machine, we're taking the machines. And then everybody's turning to the local authority and saying, legalise this or there will be job losses. And what's the government saying about this or what role does it have? Well, this is the thing. Under the current um, the the laws I just spoke about, there they have no role about these machines. Under Part Three, it's devolved out to the local authorities, like I said earlier on. Now, interestingly enough, and interesting timing, the cabinet is this this morning considering a range of packages for the first time that I can remember an actual range of packages to address the gambling issue. So they're expected to get approval for a gambling regulator. What will this regulator do? They will regulate all forms of gambling, online gambling. I'm told that these machines will come under it so that when this regulator is set up, we'll finally have an authority which will hopefully have the power to actually make some change in these areas. When we'll see, we haven't seen the full details of the package yet, but this is what we're told they're discussing this morning. What they're also bringing in is a series of what they're saying is interim measures 
so they'll raise the gambling age to 18, including for sort of like the tote. They will also update uh, stake and prize limits um, and they'll look, I, I think, at kind of in, more interim measures that they can bring in before this regulator is set up because it's going to take a while to set this up. You know, we've been talking about this for decades, so how fast we can do it and how much money is going to be put into it will be really, really interesting. And you, you, you talked to a government minister about this. Um, yeah, so I, I, I've spoken to a couple of people in, uh, in government, um, ministerially, TDs. David Stanton, who was the minister in charge of this uh, sector, was before the Shannad, and he was kind of pointing out, he was asked, you know, are we going to ban these machines? Look at the social cost. And he said, well, he basically said, and I'm paraphrasing now, if we ban these machines, well, sure, people are just going to go online. So... It's, that's that's not a convincing argument. There's lots of stuff that happens online. Yeah. Um, and we don't necessarily automatically say, well, then it's fine to do it in every pub and uh, chipper and amusement arcade in the country. Absolutely. And I think if you, I was given an example of, so we talked about Donegal there and I was speaking to people in the area yesterday about the effect of this change and they're shocked about it. And they were talking about how there, there are arcades around the area which were operating ostensibly on the amusement licenses, I presume, where people are going in, they're crossing the border, example, they're coming from Derry and they're coming in there after getting 500 euro loans from the credit union. They're sitting down and they're, you know, blowing the whole lot and they're getting nothing back. Most of these people, I was told, are older. So these would be people who wouldn't be gambling online. Now, obviously, we know that's a huge issue. But to say that if we get rid of these machines, all of those people will go online doesn't really ring true if you look at the fact that some of it is generational. Quite a lot of older people use these machines. Yeah, they would be people who wouldn't be on your online Paddy Power or, you know, they wouldn't be gambling online in Cheltenham. They, they, their form of gambling are slot machines, roulette machines, etc. So, and to, it's, it's very sad actually to hear of people going and getting loans, you know, people who have lives and commitments and bills to pay, I'm sure, and then spending hundreds and hundreds in these arcades. And, you know, Whatever side of the fence you fall on, I'm sure if it was your family member, your mother, a grandmother, a sister, a brother who's doing this in secret, you'd be devastated and you'd be devastated for them. Also, we do know that, like, for example, the gambling industry is incredibly effective at marketing itself. And we see the way it injects itself into the public discourse in all kinds of ways, not just sport, but news stories. And we've all seen those Paddy Power, you know, viral marketing campaigns and, and all those kinds of things. So physically injecting gambling into the the streetscape, even more of every town mm-hmm. uh, and making it so easy to just go in and lose 500 quid, you know, on the spot, clearly, you know, has a potentially negative impact. And it's not something that should just be looked at on the basis of a local authority's right to get 100 grand in rates. Of course. And this is the, the point that I was making. So you have people making the case for their business. You can very tangibly see if a job has been lost. You can say 50 jobs have been lost there. And that is awful. But the, the social effect of gambling and gambling addiction is not something that you see. You know, you could know somebody who you, you think you know quite well, but it turns out, you know, underneath it all, they're a gambling addict. The effect it has on people's lives goes below the radar. It's quite insidious. So, you know, we have to weigh up whether we want to prioritise our, you know, socially, you know, reform or whether we want to prioritise the short-term Just gain. one last question, just looking at it from a broader political point of view. And you're right, uh, Michael McDowell's speech was very interesting. Mm-hmm. How much of this really... This inactivity, it's a thing we observe quite a lot in, you know, in Irish politics and, you know, inability to legislate for the modern life which we lead. How much of it has to do with the fact that there are huge vested interests involved in the gambling industry, which is worth hundreds, if not thousands of millions a year? Yeah, I mean, this is the question. Michael McDool said that when he was the minister, he brought these reform proposals to cabinet. And he kind of was saying that then he came up against 
a lot of resistance. And he was saying that these casinos are often run by very powerful, influential people. So there, there is a huge element there. There is another aspect, however, that the government, every time they've sat down and made out a new law, they've kind of been outstripped by technology and the pace of change. And that's to do maybe to, with them sitting on their hands or maybe taking their time with it. It's something that you, you need to keep up with technology. So you need a law now that's constantly being updated. You don't need to be trying to change your law from 50 years ago. So if they just moved a bit faster and really made it a priority, though ev- nothing's a priority with Brexit at the moment, maybe then you'd see change. Thanks, Jennifer. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to Jennifer, Pat and Paddy. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider may be. And remember that we always welcome five-star reviews because they help in some magical way to bring us up the rankings and bring us to a broader audience. You can also always find us at irishtimes.com slash podcast and your views are extremely welcome. You can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks for listening.